fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Turned to the other and said, we don't know how lucky we are. And the Cuban stopped and said, how lucky you are. I had some place to escape to. And in that sentence, he told us the entire story. If we lose freedom here, there's no place to escape to. This is the last stand on earth. I'm saying that you cannot say that numbers collected at the employer's place of business reflect simply the employer's policies. Those, num those numbers reflect underlying conditions in the whole society, just as numbers collected at a hospital do not show you that people are sick because they're in the hospital. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. You're tuning into The Unveiled Patriot with yours truly, Travis Masterbone, and this is episode 19, titled The Maidan Revolution and Viktor Yanukovych. The Maidan protests did not enjoy a clear majority support in Ukraine. In addition, as expected, support for Maidan was heavily skewed, with especially low rates in southern and eastern Ukraine. In fact, one-third of Ukrainians described the culmination of Maidan as a coup d'etat. Only slightly more Ukrainians referred to the movement as a conscious struggle of citizens who get united to protect their rights. End quote. Chris Casper. So, welcome back. We are on to part three of my Ukraine series. Um, the first few parts, and maybe I'll have to make a couple more episodes. Um, we will be covering specifically the first documentary, Oliver Stone's Ukraine on Fire. Uh, the individual I quoted just now, Chris Casper, he is an independent journalist. Um, from Europe, and he has an incredible book that I am reading called Ukraine and the Crossfire. Highly recommended. I will be touching base on a lot of the information that he brings up as well. He has a ton of references and citations. Um, love it. So we will interplay that here and there within this episode. Um, our last episode, we examined the emergence of the Orange Revolution and how it propelled the quote-unquote George Washington of Ukraine to presidency, and that is Mr. Viktor Yushchenko. Uh, but Oliver Stone goes in at a different angle in how we view Mr. Yushchenko, and he highlights his connections not only with the United States, but also with neo-Nazis, the radical ultra-right nationalists of Ukraine. We also mentioned the political and geographical divide that has existed for years in Ukraine. It is very important to note that and keep that in mind throughout this episode. Again, the entire purpose of these series um, of episodes that I'm doing is to understand the complex geopolitical situation that we see today in Ukraine, trying to understand it to the fullest extent. No stone left unturned to my best of, to the best of my abilities. And again, war is bad. Killing innocent people is bad, right? And so it's important to note, again, just because we take a look at a perspective not broadcasted all day long on the airwaves, 
airways, it's, it doesn't mean we are condoning or justifying anyone or anything. I think Oliver Stone's primary focus is to show that there is two evils here at play. It's not black and white, especially when it comes to geopolitics. So moving forward, we now reach the real meat and potatoes of this documentary, the 2014 Maidan Revolution. So my question is, how many of you know about this revolution? Or how many know the specific players involved in these insane and tragic events? They occurred from November 2013 all the way through to February 2014. They occurred specifically in the Maidan Square, the central square of the capital city in Ukraine, Kiev. And it was one of the most deadliest revolutions in history. And it is far from the peaceful Orange Revolution that we spoke of in the last episode. This is a completely different beast. Oliver Stone peels back plenty of mystery and suspicion. And I follow up again and again with encouragement for you to do your further due diligence and fact check on your own. Right? When I examine the other documentary um, from Democracy to Chaos... Um, that one will show the more pro-Western Ukraine side. This one, again, extrapolates more on the Russian backside of this entire situation, right? But the main thing that the first documentary, uh, Democracy, um, from Democracy to Chaos, is that we fail to really see the intricacies on what Yanukovych was trying to do during his negotiations just prior to the protests, but we also failed to see what initiated it from peaceful to violent. Okay, and so Oliver Stone, he actually directly interviews the quote-unquote evil, corrupt Vladimir Putin's puppet, Mr. Viktor Yanukovych. He interviews him himself, but he also does a series of interviews with Vladimir Putin as well. And so... I will start this story by giving you a lot of quotes here and there from both of these individuals, more so from Yanukovych, um, during the time frame of these Maidan revolution protests. And then we will introduce a lot of other key players that Oliver Stone interviews as well to see exactly where they are all coming from and doing our best to see it through their lens on these complex situations in Ukraine, leading up to the revolution and during and after. So we'll get to as much as possible, but the whole point, again, is just to give you more context. When I'm quoting these guys, I am not saying they are correct or there's no way that they're lying. Again, I'm just quoting, summarizing, and painting the picture for you. So we open up identifying the obvious. Ukraine was in a bad economic situation, and they had a terrible trade agreement with Russia and Yanukovych, he came into the picture with the intentions of making a better deal with the European Union, right? And then when I touch base on this divide again, it's important to note the West of Ukraine was pro-European Union and NATO, and the East is pro-Russia, all the way down to Crimea. So Yanukovych, the president at the time, followed up Mr. Yushchenko, was negotiating and looking to fix these economic problems in Ukraine. 
And so aside from the documentary, I'm going to touch base back on Chris Casper's book, Ukraine and the Crossfire. Uh, Chris Casper Chris is an independent journalist over there, and he extrapolates on these situations quite vividly, a bit more detail, um, and the same exact situations and events that Oliver Stone highlights. And so I like plugging it in as well. And it's um, very relevant when it comes to these negotiations that Yanukovych has taken part in. And an example here. So it's important to note in 2009, this is from Chris Casper, in 2009, under the Viktor Yushchenko administration, right, the George Washington of Ukraine, pro-European, um, his regime and Ukraine, they were hit extremely hard in 2009 with a 15% contraction. And this was the largest contraction of a country in Europe aside from Latvia. All right. And this was just another big reason on why he did not win the presidency again or run again. When Yanukovych steps in in 2010, he had to deal with this regardless of the cultural and political divisions that already existed in the country, right? And so his first year, when we see Yanukovych step in, we see a 4% growth, and then the second year, an additional 5% growth. So there was improvement, but then it hit a stagnation period, right? But it's still much better than the West, -West, pro-West, European, Yushchenko regime. So he had to do something. He had to make deals. And so Yanukovych ran on the promise of expediting the negotiations with the European Union. This was actually started by Yushchenko just prior. But he also tried to gain access to the Eurasian Economic Union, the EEU, a.k.a. Russia, which we will or which he will explain in his own words in just a little bit. This is the image of somewhat of a neutral position for Yanukovych when it comes to Ukraine and this divide. He wanted to break down barriers with Ukraine's two most important trading partners. You know, Ukraine is always in the middle of superpowers, right? So he wanted to do a deal with the EU and Russia. And then also later on, we'll talk about another potential option, the International Monetary Fund. So striving for both of these agreements, again, leaves him very neutral, but with the goal primarily of stimulating the economic growth of Ukraine and doing this by considering all the foreign aspirations of all the Ukrainian people from both sides of this division. However, the EU agreement was much more than just a trade agreement, okay? This is, this is stated and cited with references by Chris Casper that the EU wanted more than a trade agreement. The treaty contained additional provisions on a wide range of additional topics such as immigration and combating terrorism. And he also states that the EU did not like the idea of Ukraine becoming a potential member of NATO while also doing a deal with Russia which was Yanukovych's goal. So it seems rather complicated. And again, I'm not a foreign policy expert by any stretch of the imagination, but these to me are the tiny details that never get mentioned. And this was the primary thing that started the Maidan protests. 
Essentially, it was due to the failure of an agreement with the European Union by Viktor Yanukovych. Okay, um, so the divide of integrating the EU and NATO was evident in 2013. Chris Casper goes on to cite um, a reference, a Gallup poll, that found that nearly twice as many Ukrainians considered NATO as a threat rather than protection. Very interesting. And so, again, why I like this book, Chris Casper in each chapter cites about 20-plus references and it's a phenomenal book summarizing the entire situation in Ukraine. It's a it's a long book and it's pretty detailed. And I suggest watching this documentary, uh, Oliver Stone documentary first, and then going in and trying to read the additional stuff. But overall, I just appreciate the amount of references that I can further dive into to confirm what he's stating and why. It just gets us much much closer to the truth. So in, so back to these negotiations. Let's hear it from Yanukovych and a little bit of Putin themselves from the Oliver Stone documentary. Yanukovych, in 2013, he says, quote, we had two partners. The International Monetary Fund was a part of that. And the International Monetary Fund is an organization of 190 countries. It's actually located in D.C. And their purpose is to handle global monetary cooperation and securing financial stability and promoting economic growth to countries around the world by giving them money and giving them consulting. And so he's working out a deal with them to get Ukraine back on track economically, along with the European Union. Um, Continuing on the quote from Yanukovych, a year of negotiations, the IMF suggested to us unacceptable solutions, a rise in utility rates, electricity and natural gas. This would mean a lot of expenses for the people while their income would stay the same, end quote. Chris Casper lines up with his words exactly. He says, quote, Yanukovych needed a loan of $27 billion. The European Union only offered $833 million. So he went to the International Monetary Fund for the remainder The IMF made harsh demands, 40% rise in gas prices, freezing of wages, and budget cuts, which ran contrary to Yanukovych's promises to the Ukrainian people during his election of lowering gas prices and getting Ukraine back in order. He wanted the European Union to negotiate better terms with the IMF. End quote from Chris Casper. And so we go back to Yanukovych. He says, quote, we suggested other solutions, but they gave an an official refusal to those proposals in November 2013. And this is right around the time where everything starts to pop off. So this left us with Russia, he says. They told us that it was ready for a partnership if we took its interests into consideration. Vladimir Putin goes on to say, The economies of Ukraine and Russia emerged as a united economy. We developed unique uh, economical relationship, and Russian markets were wide open for Ukrainian produce as well as our custom borders. Therefore, it would mean that the European Union, with all its goods, 
would enter our markets without any negotiations, end quote. And this is how we're going to segue into more on the European Union negotiating table, right? Yanukovych, again, quote, when we started calculating the balances, we realized that the agreement offered by Europe to Ukraine required essential economic expenses, and Europe didn't provide any loss balancing. And in the meantime, the Russian market would be significantly limited or even shut down from us to access, end quote. And so this is where it gets complicated, right? These negotiations were clearly not succeeding in the overall economical benefits for Ukraine through Yanukovych's eyes. And so he decided to put those negotiations on pause. All right. And again, I'm sure there's plenty of nuts and bolts in these deals. I wish I was a fly on the wall, but I'm simply just quoting from the horse's mouth and quoting journalists that are on the ground in Europe with extensive references and research to back these statements and conclusions. So with that being in mind here, it's seen the European Union had much more than a trade agreement in mind and was more focused on isolating Russia, right, and dealing with immigration, terrorism, all these other things. And in regards to the EU, Russia, and the IMF agreements altogether, these are just simplified overviews and reasoning to why Yanu just had to put a pause on them, okay? And the EU specifically was the main event that triggered the uprising of the people. The people started to protest after this decision. Because remember, Yanukovych, through the Western Ukrainian pro-EU eyes, is an evil Russian puppet. We have to keep that in mind. Was it all of Ukraine? Again, no. It was predominantly Western Ukrainians. Right? And there's plenty of evidence to back all of this from Chris Casper to Oliver Stone and my own due diligence as well. Yanu makes the claim it would be much better financially to go with Russia. Uh-oh, that's not okay. For a myriad of reasons, the EU negotiations just EU negotiations just weren't working out, and from a public perspective, this was no bueno. This appears as corruption, right? And it's important to why I'm doing this now that we see this and hear this through the eyes of their side, Yanukovych and Putin. Okay, this just gives us a better idea of the picture as a whole. So then Oliver Stone goes in and introduces another prominent figure during this time. He was the Minister of Interior Affairs from 2011 to 2014, and basically the chief of police during all this madness. His name is Vitaly Zarkochenko. Okay, and I'll refer to him as Vitaly for obvious reasons. The information that this individual provides when it comes to, Maidan, to the Maidan revolution is astounding. And I will be quoting him, so don't flip out. But here he is. Vitaly says, quote, We've had information that massive protests 
were planned beforehand. But the opposition party used the fact that the first cabinet and then the president decided to suspend signing an association agreement with the EU. This propelled it further, right? So it expedited the protests. And so the opposition party, we have to do a quick refresh. This is the fatherland party. We got key players like Arsenic Yatsenyuk, who was the leader of the opposition party from 2012 to 2014. A very, very prominent player we have to keep note of and the party fatherland. Um, we also have our blatant and unarguably racist far-right nationalist, Mr. Ole Tanebuk. Um, he's the leader of the organizations of Oboda and the neo-Nazis that registered and operated in the city of Kiev. We see new players entering this fiasco. Vitaly Klitschko, you may see him a lot today on the news. He's the famous boxer and leader of the opposition party, Yudar. He's now mayor of Kiev. He was also a former leader of the Peter Poroshenko bloc, which was the president prior to the angel we see today, Zelensky. So a lot of connections with the Western Ukraine opposition party to the pro-Russian Eastern Ukraine bloc. But they all play a prominent role in this in participating and speaking and perpetuating the Maidan protests. Tons of videos proving this, encouraging Ukrainians to stay, protest, and fight against the current administration of Yanukovych because he put these negotiations on hold. And I just simply ask, why? Why is it? Why are these players playing such a dominant role in perpetuating these events? And you may have a simple answer for me, but Oliver Stone gives much more depth. And there is plenty of footage of flags waving, the obvious blue and yellow, but also the not-so-obvious that people are very, very unfamiliar of, the red and black infamous neo-Nazi flags are all over the place as well. We have to keep this in mind. Moving forward and back to Yanukovych. Yanukovych states, in the beginning, I had a clear understanding of peaceful protests. During these protests, if peaceful, there can and should be dialogue, and I was ready for it. End quote. Back to our chief of police, Vitaly, he says, quote, one should always take into consideration that they de facto were prepared long before the event. There was a big number of NGOs financed from abroad, lots of journalists working for grants, end quote. So what are NGOs? This is where the plot really thickens, right? Non-government organizations, NGOs. And this, for me, is where the Maidan revolution and the hidden behind-the-scene players really get exposed. It makes this situation extremely gray and complex. Oliver Stone then brings in one of the, probably one of the most key individuals that he interviews when it comes to information about the inner workings of this Maidan revolution. His name is Robert Perry. 
longtime tenacious investigative journalist. He's based in D.C. Uh, he was a Pulitzer Prize finalist in 1985, founder of Consortium News, and he was best known for his investigations and journalism on the Iran-Contra scandal in the 1980s. He's big on exposing CIA, Central Intelligence Agency, involvement in other countries. He was also a leader in exposing Ronald Reagan's administration in support of Nicaragua and many, many others. He is far from right-wing. So, don't conflate and put all of us into this right-wing Russian propaganda bubble that is narrow thinking and gets us nowhere. Um, But he says a whole lot about the U.S. and its involvement in Ukraine and the Maidan revolution and many other revolutions that look, walk, and quack like ducks as well. It's quite fascinating. Robert Perry, he goes on to state, NGOs, there are many that exist that are legit, but some have become funded by government entities, the U.S., wink, wink, under the thumb of the government who funds it and serves them solely with their agendas, opposed to the people they are supposed to be working for, end quote. He refers to the 1980s, the CIA, and how they largely were discredited because of the hundreds of scandals that they were caught up in in specific countries in the past, such as as Iran, right? A certain coup d'etat of Mohammed Mossadegh. There's the Guatemalan 1954 coup, the Congo in 1961 coup. The Cuba CIA operations during the Fidel Castro era, Brazil, 1964, Indonesia, Chile, all involved the CIA in one way, shape, or form through coups, overthrowing their governments, regime replacement. Robert Perry further goes on to state that from the early 50s to the 80s, the CIA would infiltrate via funding NGOs, non-government organizations, news media outlets, and specific political parties for specific operations. But then they had to shift gears due to that reputation and the scandals. Instead of the CIA going in, it it was passed along to the National Endowment for Democracy, NED, Look it up. The National Endowment for Democracy, a private nonprofit foundation founded in 1983, dedicated to the growth and strengthening of democratic institutions around the world. From the site itself, go look. Each year, funding from the U.S. Congress, NED supports more than 1,000 projects of non government groups abroad who are working for democratic goals. The good guys, right? Their quote is supporting freedom around the world, end quote. This would directly fund specific countries, and within that country, this organization would fund political parties, activists, journalists, business groups, and try their best to advance U.S. 
foreign policy interests, and sometimes even against the actual host government. That is important to note with this Ukraine situation. Was all of Ukraine on board and all of the government officials on board if this was was the case? NGOs became the new middleman instead of the CIA. And there you have it on the site itself. Ukraine has received plenty of funding aimed and directed towards, quote, furthering Ukraine's democratic transition, end quote. And you see various grants and subsidies, 37K here, 38K here, 38K here, all heading in that direction. It was all with the intended purpose of furthering a political agenda and gathering as much support as possible through social media and mainstream media, how to broadcast one side more than the other, pure favoritism, and techniques on how to make stories go viral and generate support for specific causes. The Maidan Revolution is a prime example of this, in my opinion. And we now introduce one specific individual who's highly related to this realm, Mustafa Naim. Look him up, Mustafa Naim, founder of one of Ukraine's new news media outlets and currently a member of parliament in Ukraine today, co-founder of Global Office, an NGO aiming to promote Ukraine to the global community. In Oliver Stone's documentary, we see him speaking quite often at the Maidan protests, on stage and giving interviews on the streets, making it seem that he is a, a true and genuine activist. He is a huge, huge player in spreading the news across Ukraine and creating this movement specifically. He's known for a famous Facebook post in, um, on November 21st, in 2013, he brought the initial crowds to Maidan, right? And so when it comes to this CIA exposement, Oliver Stone goes on to cite the recipe for a revolution, right? And the first one is money. We see that funding. We need money in order to get this thing going. But then he touches base on the media, the importance of the media, right? And then the third one is techniques, which we'll get into later or in another episode. But the money and now the media, check, check. Three new TV channels emerged just prior to the Maidan revolution that started on November 21st, 2013. We have Splino, Spilino. Dot TV, S-P-I-L-N-O dot TV, that was founded November 21st, 2013. Hermodsky, H-R-O-M-A-D-S-K-E dot TV, they were put together November 22nd, 2013. And Enspeco, E-C-N-P-E-C-O TV, November 24th, 2013. And all of these became stunningly popular and directly from the opposition protests. These channels went viral, supporting the protests, encouraging more and more people, along with this individual, Mustafa Naim. And more and more people came, hundreds of thousands. 
and keep in mind of the NGO, NGOs behind the scenes, right, and the U.S. involvement. So, with all that in mind, let's go back to Vitaly, our chief of police. He says, quote, The protests were first peaceful. People all gathered, not worried about police. They trusted the police. In fact, the police officers on duty those days were not even carrying firearms. But among those peaceful protests, you see radicals, end quote. And he's referring to the neo-Nazis, the provocateurs. And you see footage, plenty of it, panning over the crowds, specific sections at the Maidan protest, zooming in on police officers that are unarmed, the peaceful protesters, and then, of course, the radicals, the red and black flags, the neo-Nazis, plenty of groups here and there doing suspicious activity, radical gear, helmets, masks, all black. He goes on to say these were clearly members of the ultra-right parties and neo-fascist organizations identified November um, on November 24th, they committed their first acts of aggression, attacking the building of cabinet of ministers of Ukraine and all of the officers guarding it, end quote. And you see this. You see the footage. They're clearly antagonizing the police officers, pepper spray, tear gas, throwing shit. This was just the first act of aggression. The next day, November 25th, they did another attack. But then the worst, more notorious, was about a week later on November 30th. This was the turning point, one of the most reported and mysterious events from the Maidan Revolution. Vitaly goes on to continue about this day. The head of Kiev State Administration at the time was Alexander Popov. And Vitaly goes on to say that this individual, Popov, gave him a call and said that they wanted to bring in equipment for a Christmas tree installation right in the middle of Maidan. Vitaly says there's no way with the people there, and he denied it. He said no, whether that's true or not, what have you. It was around 1 a.m., and this was right around the time when most of the protesters became, uh, I mean, didn't became, but started to leave, and... Vitaly had a phone conversation with this head of Secret Service for Ukraine and asked for an assessment of the situation. And he said, quote, thank God, I think it's over. Everyone's leaving. Vitaly, he mentions that he was sleeping in his office at the time throughout the revolution, getting about two to three hours of sleep and passed out after that convo. But then he woke up, turned on the TV, and all hell was breaking loose. He saw ambulances, people beaten. He was confused. He even says, quite, he says, quote, frankly speaking, I broke out in a cold sweat, end quote. Yanukovych is on this same uh, level of surprise. Yanukovych says, quote, my first reaction to the police actions on Maidan was immediate. We had to investigate who gave an order to break up the protesters and use force against them. I was against any violations of human rights and using force against the protests, end quote. Both of these individuals are implying it wasn't them who initiated the conflict. Now, are they lying? 
I don't fucking know. But I have to consider his and Vitaly's point of view with this situation, especially with all the information that I have presented thus far in this episode and my previous episodes and the radical presence of the neo-Nazis that the news says doesn't exist or is irrelevant. Moving forward, Vitaly said that Popov, right, Alexander Popov, he wasn't the sole shot caller to these tragic events. Who was Popov subordinate to? Because we're trying to figure out who did these aggressive acts to initiate it. According to the news, it was all the police and the evil Yanukovych. But Popov was subordinate to the chief of staff, Sergei Lyovochkin. Today, Lyovochkin is currently a member of Ukrainian parliament and coincidentally is a close associate to high-level U.S. associates or high-level senior officials, I should say. Jeffrey Pyatt, U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. You see plenty of photos and videos of these two. And then also Victoria Nuland, this fucking chick. The assistant secretary of state, she's the biolabs chick. We will keep both of these individuals in our back pocket for fucking now. But they are extremely vital to this spider web of events when it comes to linking the U.S. to this entire mess. But just know that Lyavochkin, right, he is the one who gave the order, apparently, through Popoff, or Popoff was just subordinate to him. And the chief of staff, Lyavochkin, has these ties, and then it was confirmed through Secret Service, that he did, in fact, have contact with opposition leader Yatsenyuk. So I mentioned him earlier, Yatsenyuk, the radical 2012-2014 opposition leader from the Fatherland Party. And apparently this is confirmed that they discussed clearing out Maidan to install the fucking Christmas tree that Vitaly, the chief of police, said not to. This is all based on the words here. But this is apparently what occurred. You see this footage of the TV rolling on in. Or the, you see this footage on TV of the Christmas tree just rolling on in. And then we see Vitaly mention on TV that the news was reporting that everything accelerated all over Ukraine and the world that the riot police were the ones who initiated this. They were the ones that attacked the peaceful protesters. However, Oliver Stone presents footage showing after the rolling of this Christmas tree into Maidan, specific individuals dressed in all black chucking Molotov cocktails at the police from the crowds, holding crowbars and bats, also a coincidence, dozens of journalists were also on the scene with cameras ready for action when we thought everything was clearing out. Think again. When everything or everyone thought there was going to be no more action, those new public TV stations that were recently installed were right there for coverage. Maybe it's just a coincidence. At the same time, of the arrival of riot police. 
it seems like a giant show for this initial aggression, or not the initial aggression, but where things really turn for the worse. All right, and at the same time, we see dozens of individuals, red and black, fa- uh, red and black flags, masks, bats, the worst. The works looking like well-trained, funded provocateurs holding up signs reading the right sector, right? As mentioned earlier, this group is that extreme, that extremist group, right-wing, ultra-nationalists. You know, we have militias there, and they were all present during these protests at this time on this day. Throwing stones, torches, Molotov cocktails, anything and everything possible to create chaos, But what's interesting to me, from a far away bystander, these individuals were left out of the broadcasts of these events that occurred that evening. These individuals were also left out in the next documentary that I'm going to jump into from Democracy to Chaos. Quite convenient. But I'll tell you this much. This is a necessary thing that we need to know to understand what took place here. We go back to Robert Perry. He makes the claim that these groups were being shipped into Kiev, providing the muscle for the demonstrations. These individuals are responsible for transitioning the peaceful protests to violent conflicts and riots and death. The right sector, the neo-Nazis, they had militias. And training for situations of conflict just like this. They were highly involved. And they were the individuals specifically who were being shipped in. And it's just insanely crazy that the riot police show up at the exact same time. So, moving forward into December 1st. Now these protests. More people show up outraged and fueled by what was reported on the news from this Christmas tree night, which, of course, didn't include any of the provocateurs or extremists, right? It only reported the riot police as the initiators. Go figure. The news outlets that conveniently appeared this month. NGOs. It kind of makes sense, doesn't it? And who's to blame? None other than Yanukovych. Regime change. He is obviously the evil perpetrator, right? But after this, December 1st, now we got a whole new batch of individuals pissed off from the news. Now the serious law violations begin. And I am honestly quite in shock on how many red and black flags and protesters dressed in all black with crowbars just scattered across it. I never even heard of this shit in my life. I've never even heard of these groups. I thought they were disbanded. This is a myth. 1950s, they don't exist. I don't know. I don't know what to believe anymore. But I'll tell you this much. According to the footage, someone has explaining to do. Yanukovych goes on to say, quote, There were neo-Nazi organizations participating, young people armed with bats and metal bars. They used road-building machinery with bulldozers. They ran into the officers. (laughs) The techniques launched at that time were planned in well, were planned well in advance, end quote. I laugh because it's insane. Oliver Stone dives into these specific techniques, right? 
This is the third part of the recipe of a revolution. And I tell you this much, Yanukovych is correct when he says that. Whether he is a good person, bad person, a liar, dictator, whatever, these riots that took place with all of the information that I laid out for you today, they were planned. Oliver Stone goes on to point out, hey, these riots and revolutions look really similar, actually, to Yemen, Libya, Syria, Venezuela, Iran, Lebanon, and many, many more. It's fucking wild. So keep in mind, as I close, and there's plenty more crazy events and things that are stirred up within this Maidan revolution, I'll wrap back and open up with it in my next episode, but we have an insane amount of details left out due to time's sake. I can't urge you enough to once again watch these documentaries on your own, purchase this Chris Casper book, Ukraine and the Crossfire, explore his references even deeper, have your computer, Google, DuckDuckGo, whatever, go look up these individuals, and you will come to find that this is far from black and white. And again, when I revisit on this journey to finish up our Oliver Stone documentary, his recipe for a revolution, we went over money, media, and just a snag of the techniques. We're going to go a bit deeper into the techniques, right? We touch base on the perspective of Viktor Yanukovych, the negotiations and the events leading up to the Maidan revolution and what was potentially behind its emergence. We saw the money from the NGOs in the U.S. and CIA. We pointed out the media influences that branched off and spread the uh, spread like wildfire to perpetuate these protests even further, potentially being the reason on why they turned so brutal and violent. But again, the techniques themselves, we see these patterns elsewhere around the world. And I will dive into the color revolutions. It's a fascinating topic that I've been researching long before all this crap and war in Ukraine and this documentary. But the masterminds of color revolutions know that they need mass followings to truly believe they are one. And they perfected the art of this. We'll explore the symbolism they use. The specific techniques. The powerful tools to achieve this end. And all these revolutions leverage political scenarios, peaceful protests against enemies, and transition them into full-blown coup d'etats, funded, organized, and planned in advance with repeatable steps and tactics, much like what we highlighted here today in the Maidan Revolution. The plot fucking thickens once again. So please, like, share, subscribe, all that shit. And thank you, again, from the bottom of my heart, for listening to The Unveiled Patriot with yours truly, Travis Masterbone. And I look forward to you tuning in next time. Farewell. Farewell.